Kardashev scale is a measurement system devised by the Soviet astronomer Nikolai Kardashev back in 1964. This scale was meant to help us very roughly approximate the different levels of development for potential spacefaring civilizations. And space was something that we were just delving into at the time, and we were feeling pretty optimistic about it overall because of the rate of development of such things during the space race. We were looking both outward and inward and thinking, okay, let's maybe figure out what we might expect during this extended exploration process. A type 1 civilization, according to this scale, can utilize and store all of the energy generated by its home planet. So if and when we're able to tap all of our available energy sources, by some interpretations, including just the energy arriving to our planet from our sun, and by others encompassing all of the possible energy sources from wind to water to geothermal to magnetic and gravitational and radiation-based alongside solar, while also having methods to store such energy so that we can use it when we want rather than when it happens to be available, we will have reached the level of a planetary civilization, which is type 1 on the Kardashev scale. A type 2 civilization, according to this scale, has that same level of control over its entire home solar system. For us, this would mean the human species fanning out to occupy other planets and fully tapping the energy available from our sun all the way out to the outer limits of the sun's photonic influence. Beyond Neptune, beyond the centaurs, the icy comets and comet-like bodies that exist on the outer expanses of the solar system. Beyond even the Kuiper Belt, Pluto and Charon, up until possibly the Heliopause, the outer limits of our sun's influence. But perhaps even as far out as the Oort Cloud, just beyond that outermost solar limit. We would need to tap all of the energy available within that incredibly vast chunk of space to become a Type II civilization, a stellar civilization, according to the definition provided by the Kardashev scale. Which is a whole lot if you think about how much energy is available just on Earth, and then expand that thinking to encompass other similarly rocky planets, but also all the moons, all the asteroids and comets, and the chunky gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter, which themselves are chock-full of potential energy sources. In a Type Three civilization, the highest level on this scale sprawls across a galaxy, having control over the total energy resources of that galaxy, and a galaxy, for reference, spans anywhere between a few hundred million to 100 trillion stars, and their accompanying planets and moons and asteroids and such on average, which is borderline unthinkable in terms of where we are today, not yet even close to achieving type 1 status, our energy production and consumption and storage levels highly imbalanced and unstable, many of what might turn out to be optimal energy options left on the table, underdeveloped, like fusion power, for instance, while others, like the impermanent and ecologically costly fossil fuels that we've relied on for most of modern history, still dominate, taking the place of the near-infinite options that we haven't yet figured out how to make economically and technologically sustainable, even at our current scale, thus far. The reason the Kardashev scale is considered to be meaningful, and in fact the reason it was developed in the first place, 
is that each level, each type of civilization, has access to orders of magnitude more energy than the type that came before it. So if a type 1 civilization would control the amount of energy that lands on Earth, originating from our Sun every second, and this will be different for each planet-star combination, but in the case of the Earth and our Sun, the amount of energy that is sent to us by the Sun every second is about 174 quadrillion watts, which is 174 million billion watts, or 174 followed by 15 zeros. For comparison, our current roughly approximated level of production is about 15 trillion watts, which is a 15 with 12 zeros, so a type 1 civilization would produce about 11,600 times as much energy as we currently do here on Earth. And that's just to get our foot in the Kardashev door. The next level up, becoming a stellar civilization, having the energy capacity of a solar system, that would require, in the neighborhood, of 400 septillion watts of power, which is 400 million billion billion watts, or a 4 with 26 zeros. A type 3 civilization, the highest possible level of civilization Kardashev thought was possible, though other thinkers in this space have since extrapolated this list further into even broader possibilities. But a type 3 civilization, according to Kardashev, would control the energy output of a galaxy, which would add up to something like 40 undecillion watts, which is 40 billion 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 watts, or a 4 with 37 zeros, if we're talking about a galaxy the size of the Milky Way, at least, which is our galaxy. To reach that third level status, it's thought that we'd need to figure out how to tap into the power of supermassive black holes, we'd need to capture the energy contained in gamma-ray bursts, and potentially even harness the power of quasars, basically learning how to not just explore and explain some of the biggest and most powerful forces in the known universe, but also control them, and or plug our smartphone cables into them for power. We are nowhere near close to even being able to understand much of what would be required to make this happen. This is pure speculation, and it's likely that if and when we get to this point, which futurist Michio Kaku thinks we might be able to do in the next 100,000 to 1 million years, our understanding of the universe, and indeed reality, would be so different from what it is today that the way in which we're even looking at this problem, and space, and everything else right now, will be so laughably antiquated as to be meaningless. At that point, the whole concept of energy, and life, and everything else as we think of it today might not even make sense. A type 2 civilization is also far beyond our ability to concretely predict the shape of, and even what it would take to get close to that level currently. But we do have a few somewhat more developed ideas about how it might maybe someday work. An imagined superstructure called a Dyson Sphere, for instance, could allow us to tap our central star for energy, collecting almost all of it, or literally all of the energy released by this immense natural energy source, and to use that energy to fuel our expansion. The Dyson Sphere would likely take the shape of either a completely enclosed star-sized sphere surrounding the star in question, or perhaps more likely, a precisely numbered and arranged collection of drones or nanobots or something like that surrounding the sun and soaking up its rays. 
sending that energy that they collect out to collection and distribution points nearby, maybe using microwave beams or something more advanced and exotic, and from there out to the rest of us out in other parts of the solar system, who would then benefit from something like an energy internet, wirelessly fueling our technologies wherever we might find ourselves along the way, all powered by that central star-tapping hub. Another way we might utilize this level of energy, though, rather than for purely expansionary purposes, would be to build another megastructure, often called a matryoshka brain, named after the well-known Russian nesting dolls. A matryoshka brain would consist of several Dyson spheres nested around each other, with a star at the core. The central Dyson sphere would absorb energy directly from the sun, and would use that energy to power a massive star-scale supercomputer. The waste heat from that computer would be expelled outward, to the next Dyson Sphere, which would collect that heat, convert it into usable energy, and use that energy to power another layer of supercomputer, and so on and so on, outward and outward, until all of the energy is completely used up, and the supercomputer's scale is beyond incredible. This massive computer could then be used for a variety of things, from simulating the entire universe, potentially giving us the ability to understand supposedly chaotic movements and behaviors, essentially being able to tell the future, and being able to precisely understand how we might tweak small things to make the big changes we want to see, to simulating an entirely new universe, which would allow sapient species like us to live our lives, immortal for all practical purposes, inside a simulated universe that we construct to be however we want it to be, serving as kind of a real-seeming sims, a technologist-built heaven, or even just an alternative world, an escape hatch, or maybe a research-enabling reality, a way of looking at everything, testing things out, without doing anything actually harmful to the quote-unquote real universe. I'll throw one more astronomically scaled number at you here. Four quindecillion, which is a four with 48 zeros, and which is approximated to be the amount of computing power we would need in order to have a real-deal Matryoshka brain. Four quindecillion flops. And flops is an acronym that stands for floating point operations per second, meaning the number of a certain type of mathematical operation a computer can carry out simultaneously per second. We are nowhere near that many flops in our computers, even in our most fancy and expensive supercomputers at the moment. But we are approaching some very exciting milestones in the world of classical computing right now. And what I'd like to talk about today is one impending milestone in particular, which could end up being nothing, but which could also be fairly momentous, both in terms of our computational capabilities and in terms of our understanding of life and consciousness. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today is actually a report about a presentation that was recently given at a U.S.-based Department of Energy-hosted event to celebrate a made-up holiday called Exascale Day. The piece, published in a computing-focused publication called The Next Platform, is entitled Exascale is Not Your Grandfather's HPC. There are many possible ways one might carve up and organize the history of any industry. And over the past nearly four years of producing this podcast, I've told the story of the development of computers and computer-adjacent technologies in a few different ways. 
as parts of several different broader current events-focused storylines. One means of dissecting the history of computing that I have not brought up before, though, is via the scale of the computers in question, the power level of the hardware expressed in orders of magnitude. And from this perspective, the history of computing has a surprisingly steady cadence in that new orders of magnitude, in terms of power, arrive at a reliably predictable pace, or they generally do, at least. Before I get into that, though, a quick note about what I mean by order of magnitude. If you've ever seen a number displayed as something like 3 times 10 to the 4th power, so 3 times 10 with a little superscript 4 hovering above it and to the right, that means we're looking at an order of magnitude of 4, and that number translates to a 3 with 4 zeros, 30,000. This can be a useful way to display numbers, in part because it saves space when writing such things out, especially with very large numbers. But it also, at a glance, gives us a way of figuring out what order of magnitude we're operating within, which can allow us to quickly estimate sums or to understand the difference between two or more numbers that we're trying to compare and contrast. We can quickly see, for instance, that 1 times 10 to the second power is vastly different from 1 times 10 to the sixth power. That's 100 compared to 1 million. And the difference between $100 and $1 million is the difference between grocery money and life-changing, potentially never have to work again if you invest correctly money. The important takeaway here, though, is that each new power level is not the difference between a number and a slightly larger number. It's a change in the scale at which we're operating. One year is different from one decade, which is 10 years, and one decade is different from one century, which is one more power level up, 100 years. A millennium, 1,000 years, is one more power level up from a century, and the difference between each of these levels is significant and increasing, above and beyond the difference we would generally find between normal numerical increments. So in this case, a difference of 9 years, then a difference in 90 years, then a difference in 900 years, as those power levels increase. We could see fundamental shifts in the way that we live year by year, or from the year 2006 until the year 2009, just a three-year difference. But it's far more likely that we will see massive shifts after a decade or a century than any number of individual year increments. So order of magnitude measurements are meant to help us grok such distinctions in terms of broader shifts, and each new superscript number adds another zero, which, as we scale up, means an increase in not just one, but ten, then a hundred, then a thousand, then ten thousand, and so on. Comparing three thousand five hundred to five thousand is operating within one order of magnitude, that of the thousands, while comparing three thousand five hundred to one hundred fifty thousand is comparing between two different orders of magnitude the 1,000s, and the 100,000s. When we use this measurement system within the world of computing, rather than the world of money or years, that same rule applies. Rather than thinking about the minor evolutions from one chipset to the next, or comparing the difference between different generations of iPhone, we're generally looking at more fundamental shifts. 1 times 10 to the second power will be fundamentally different than 1 times 10 to the third power, despite the numbers seeming close together because that leap is a difference in the scale of what we're measuring, like a leap from years to decades to centuries to millennia. When it comes to computation, the average person's ability to mentally compute a multiplication problem with the aid of pen and paper is generally considered to be somewhere in the 5 times 10 to the negative 1 computing power range, 
which is perfectly fine for a human being using a relatively simple piece of technology as an aid, but not at all impressive when it comes to what we're able to do with modern technology, as you will soon see. And this measurement, by the way, is typically measured in flops, which as I mentioned in the intro, is roughly a measurement of how many math problems of a particular type can be done per second. An order of magnitude step up from that, we see early mechanical computers, devices with sprockets and simple electrical currents, which are able to operate at something like 1 times 10 to the zeroth power as we measure such things. Decascale computing is an order of magnitude up from that, and we can measure human perception of the visual world at this level. 6 times 10 to the first power is at the upper range of human perception, meaning we take in and process visual information quite rapidly and at roughly an order of magnitude faster than we can compute math problems consciously. A level up from that, we have hectoscale computing, and this is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1 times 10 to the second power. Here we find early IBM punch card computers, with which we were able to compute complex addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division problems. Kilo scale, which is 10 to the third power, brings us the first vacuum tube-based supercomputer named Colossus in 1943, alongside the Intel 4004, which was the first CPU on a chip that was released in 1971. The distinction between the two actually being quite vast, at 500 times 10 to the third, and 92 times 10 to the third, respectively. But again, both existing within the same order of magnitude and thus falling into the same general power range. Megascale brought us computers based on transistors. Gigascale computing, 10 to the ninth power, brought us supercomputers capable of doing fluid dynamics problems back in 1972, which, to put it lightly, is a very difficult kind of math to do. But this power level also included the Intel Pentium 3 chip, released on the consumer market in 1999, and another chip released by Intel in 2010, which is far more powerful than that earlier chip and that much earlier supercomputer, but which still exists within the same order of magnitude in terms of power. Terascale computing is where many of us live today. This is 1 times 10 to the 12th power, and supercomputers from the late 90s rank at this level, as do high-end graphics chips, IBM's Watson supercomputer, and at the top end, coming in at 960 times 10 to the 12th power, is NVIDIA's DGX1 Deep Learning Focused Supercomputer. So the type of supercomputer that you have doing impressive AI things. Petascale computers exist, but they're relatively new and are exclusively supercomputers at the moment, with IBM's Roadrunner and Sequoia computers falling into this category, alongside the Chinese National University and Defense Department's Tianhe-2 and the Chinese National Research Center of Parallel Computer Engineering and Technologies, Sunway Taihu Light, up near the top in terms of performance. U.S.-based companies still occupy the top power slots when it comes to supercomputing, as of early 2020, but Chinese companies and government agencies have built nearly half of the most powerful supercomputers that are in operation today, far more than the U.S.'s 23% of all of those computers. And as of the day I'm recording this, at least, the Chinese are closing the overall power gap quite rapidly. That level, petascale computing, includes systems that are operating at 10 to the 15th power. So recall that if we're talking about years, 10 to the 0th is one year, 10 to the first is a decade, 10 to the second is a century, and 10 to the third is a thousand years, a millennia. 
and up and up and up from there, adding zeros, massively increasing the quantity of years that we're talking about each time we add another superscript number. In computing, we're talking about processing capability, moving at the same ever-inflating rate rather than an incremental steady rate. 10 to the 15th, then, is not 15 times more powerful than 10 to the 1st. We're talking about 10 compared to a 1 with 15 zeros, which is a quadrillion, which in the world of computing means that these devices are capable of performing 1 quadrillion, or thereabouts, floating point operations per second. That many math problems per second, essentially, which allows these computers to not just do fancy math, but also to accurately predict the effects of complex systems, like the weather, and even the climate, which is the weather over vast time periods on a meta scale. These computers are used to conduct nuclear simulations, to do quantum chemistry, to conduct fusion science experiments, and to work with cosmological levels of data, tracking the entire sky and the seemingly countless number of objects in that sky, making predictions, also immensely accurate, as to where those objects will go next. Petascale computing also allows us to simulate the entire brain of lower-level organisms, like nematodes and fruit flies, but also relatively higher-level brains, like those of mice and rats. And when I say simulate the brain, I mean building computer models that replicate the entire network of neurons, along with the electrical and chemical properties of those neurons, which in practice captures all of the measurable brain bits and how all those bits interact with each other. And once we've got those bits and their relationships with each other in that simulation, we can turn it on and see how it all works and do experiments on a digital brain rather than having to do the same on a less controllable, non-rewindable, less seeable in action real rat or mouse brain. The article I mentioned earlier is about the next step up from petascale computing, which is called exascale computing. Petascale is at the 10 to the 15th power level, and exascale jumps up to 10 to the 18th power. The difference here, again, just like each of those other leaps, is quite vast. But in this case, the meaningful difference may be significant on the human level, alongside the defense, science, and other purposes that may emerge once we're able to leverage this kind of computational might. Exascale computers are defined as being able to perform at least one exaflop per second, which works out to a billion billion or quintillion, a one with 18 zeros, calculations per second, a thousand-fold increase over petascale. This milestone is extra meaningful because it's estimated that the human brain at the neural level, meaning at the functional subconscious and conscious level performing all the functions of a brain, not just our conscious thoughts, operates somewhere within the exascale. We have a lot of computational heft underpinning our breathing and walking and consciousness-creating brain functionality. And once we're able to artificially compute at this scale, we may better understand how our brains, and thus maybe our consciousness, our biologies, and everything else related to us, how it all works. Now that is just one potential benefit of this massive increase in power, of course. If you upgrade your computer, not only can you use a better version of Photoshop and play better games and do all the other things that you were not able to do on your last computer, but you can also do the things that your last computer was capable of faster and better. And you can likely have a bunch of windows and software open simultaneously and have the whole thing work just fine. Whereas maybe your last computer struggled to do just one or two of those things at a time. Similarly, 
This upgrade will allow us to do more of what we are currently doing today better. So complex 3D modeling of computationally intense things, like climate change effects and modeling of nuclear war, will become commonplace and easy, rather than expensive and rare like it is today. That is a massive benefit that is offered by these sorts of upgrades, alongside all the new things that we will likely be able to do in that expensive and rare way for the first time. But especially in an age where we're developing an increasing number of our medicines, like antibiotics, using what we might loosely call artificial intelligence, and where a lot of current and future applications of software require the crunching of massive amounts of data in short periods of time, like autonomous vehicles and the software-augmented landing of planes. A lot of what happens next in these spaces will almost certainly be the consequence of this leap in computational capability, and a lot of what comes next, that we haven't predicted yet, will be the result of this massive boost in strength and speed that our machines and software will be able to leverage on our behalf. Now before I get into the potential political ramifications of this shift, and the current race to reach this milestone first, I want to fairly quickly address the elephant in the room when it comes to simulating brains, be they nematode or human brains. It's long been thought that we might be capable of simulating a human brain using far less processing power than our brains themselves utilize. The human brain may operate at the exascale, in other words, but it may be possible to create what amounts to a functional simulation of that brain using far less power than that. A bit like playing a video game at a lower resolution, a lower quality, with shoddier graphics, but the same underlying gameplay functionality. And that would allow us to do a lot of the science that we want to do with human brains, but on the scale that software allows being able to see how the pieces interact with each other, what goes where, what variables influence what, and how we might cure or treat certain brain-related ailments without needing a bunch of actual human brains to operate on and work with, and being able to view all those processes live, which is very difficult to do with a living human brain. But if we do, indeed, reach the actual scale of a human brain and create a convincing simulation of a true brain within software, what distinguishes that brain from a real brain? True, this human-made version would exist as software inside a silicone and metal and plastic device represented at the fundamental level with the same ones and zeros and logic gates that make up most of our classical computing landscape. But does that matter? Is that distinction actually important? Does the type of jar matter to the brain inside the jar? Might we accidentally, in other words, Create a real, actual brain, based on silicone and plastic and metal and ones and zeros instead of brain tissue and DNA, but that nonetheless functions in the same way, including the potential emergence of consciousness within that brain. I mean, that's kind of the point, isn't it? To create a brain that is as exactly like a real brain as possible. Otherwise, it would be less useful as a brain replication for the purposes of testing procedures and drugs and understanding how things fit together. So at what point do new ethical questions emerge when we're doing this kind of simulation? And how would we know if a brain contained within software goes live, wakes up, becomes a true thinking and conscious thing, rather than simply displaying many or most of the same physical attributes of functionality without actually developing consciousness, and thus by some definitions life and even humanity? How do we know which of these simulated brains are zombies and which are like us? How do we know if and when consciousness arises, and what do we do if it does? 
These are difficult questions, and rightfully so. And they're questions that folks in this field are attempting to address ahead of time. Though, as far as I know, without any true, unified, holistically shared concrete answers yet. In part because there are a lot of players involved, all with different intentions and levels of concern about these potential outcomes. And in part because it's difficult to imagine the secondary consequences of such an outcome before it arrives. Yes, we can probably imagine the knee-jerk reactions we might all have to the emergence of artificial life, in large part because of the abundance of examples we've encountered through our fiction over the years. But can we truly preemptively assess the range of possible outcomes that might emerge from those knee-jerk reactions? Maybe, though we might require substantially more computing power than even exascale systems would grant us to do so accurately. If you are curious to learn more about what's happening in this particular facet of the computing and scientific world, by the way, it's worth looking into what is called neuromorphic engineering, which is the field and study of mimicking the brain, both physically, using hardware and even wetware, a term often applied to building computers with biological matter, like actual neurons and brain tissue and DNA, but also using software, simulating such things but doing so in a very realistic point-for-point, neuron-for-neuron fashion. This field includes full-scale modeling, but also modeling of individual systems, like the auditory system or the visual system, so that we can better understand how these systems function and fit together, over time learning more about ourselves, but also learning from biology how we might build better non-biological systems, from speakers and touchscreens to architecture. So exascale computing is part of this larger technological growth trajectory, allowing us to do all kinds of whiz-bang cool new things, from broad-based computing and modeling and simulating to expanding our existing cloud computing capabilities, and even doing things like politics and war and healthcare better. As such, a lot of companies and government entities are interested in developing this tech first, so that they can get started on developing use cases for the technology, perhaps benefiting from first-mover advantages, which can compound over time, alongside the accolades that come from being the first to do some new impressive technological whatever, the implication being that your country or company is superior, because your research and development people and infrastructure helped you reach this new height of computational power first, a sort of moon-landing moment within the world of computing. That brings us back around to this week's article, which again is a summary of what happened at the U.S. government's Exascale Day event, where some of the players in this space presented their intended next steps for the applications of this technology and their updated predicted milestones in terms of when the tech would be available. The first thing to note here is that Exascale has not arrived on time, according to predictions and historical developmental precedent. I mentioned earlier that there is a particular cadence for these orders of magnitude upgrades, and based on previous experience, we should have had exascale computers in operation sometime in late 2018 or in early 2019 at the latest. This did not happen for a variety of know-how and systemic reasons, and that's true worldwide, not just within this particular primarily U.S.-based group. China intended to have their first exascale computer done in 2020, but they have since pushed that back to 2021. And the same is true of other companies and entities working in this space around the world. Part of the issue here is size. In the same way that you can't just infinitely scale up a biological entity, 
Godzilla would not actually be physically able to exist, because at that size, its legs would collapse, its skin would rupture from internal pressure, and its body would burn up from the heat generated from its internal processes, among other design issues. In that same way, you cannot just scale up the computer systems and layout that you had before, plugging in more and more processors to the same computer system, and expect it to be faster and better. One of the exascale computers that is set to arrive in 2021, being built by the American Oak Ridge National Laboratory, will be as large as two basketball courts, have 90 miles of high-speed cable, and draw 30 megawatts of power. And for reference, a megawatt is a million watts, and a single megawatt is generally considered to be capable of powering 1,000 homes. So 30 megawatts could power 30,000 homes. That's how much electricity this one computer is expected to use. There's also a latent issue with the arrangement of supercomputing assets. In many cases, these supercomputers are made up of grids of smaller computers, all plugged into each other, working as a network. At a certain point, though, you run up against the transmission limits of the cables that connect them to each other, creating a bottleneck that cannot be overcome with just more of the same cabling. As such, a lot of the issues that are being sorted out by folks building these machines are issues of material science, the types of plastics and metals that they utilize for transmission speed and heat dissipation, for instance, alongside issues related to how the pieces fit together, how the software manages the many flows of information so that those flows unify and end up working together, and other non-obvious problems of that kind. Part of why these sorts of investments are considered to be worthwhile, of course, by both business interests and government interests, is that having more of this kind of power at hand in one place means you could, potentially, give yourself a difficult-to-close advantage gap over other countries and or companies, because more computing power could mean a greater ability to develop the materials of the future, the system arrangements of the future meaning an advantage in computing power could, if leveraged correctly, help you upgrade your future computer systems, turning a seemingly small lead into a massive one in short order that would then benefit itself cyclically. And the greater the lead in this category of technology, the greater the potential lead in other aspects of science and technology as well, which is something that touches on everything from food distribution to military organization and deployment. In a very real way, advantages in computing, if leveraged well, can become advantages in just about every other possible sector and endeavor. So computing is one of the few true meta-advantages that can be pursued, and thus it is often provided with a solid quantity of resources, even when the payoffs are not right on the horizon. And those investments generally increase as the tangible benefits of previous investments become close to fruition, just a year or two away. Now, as I mentioned, it's possible that we'll see some early exascale systems in 2020, though it's more likely that the fully baked versions will arrive in 2021, the early models mostly just for show and for bragging rights, rather than for their true eventual high-end computational purposes. It'll likely be longer than that, the end of 2021 at the minimum, before most of us see any tangible benefits from this particular evolution. But as with the simulation of the human brain, it's generally a good idea to be thinking about these sorts of leaps, these sorts of potential sea-change technologies before they arrive, lest we find ourselves flat-footed when the reality finally lands, and a slew of things, from the way we do science to the way we get from place to place, to our perception of consciousness and life, change overnight. <music> Thank you.
The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Underland by Robert McFarlane. Going into this book, I knew very broadly what to expect, that it was an exploration of things underground, basically. But that concept is a lot broader based than I would have suspected. And the book is written very poetically, to the point that it was almost a little off-putting at first. I almost set this book down, maybe an hour into reading it. But that was because I didn't understand the rhythm of it yet. And it really is incredibly informational. It's just done in a narrative nonfiction format, telling the story of the exploration of these different underground spaces, from things like tombs to things like the roots of trees, through the eyes of the author as he is gathering that information and having these experiences underground. The information itself is incredibly interesting, though, and the language used to describe it is quite poetic and beautiful. So if you're interested in learning more about a variety of different things that just happen to be underground, and thus similar and very dissimilar in many ways, consider picking up a copy of Underland by Robert McFarlane. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the show at letsnotethings.com. You can find the books that I've written at colin.io. And you can find two of my other writing projects at brainlenses.com and askcolin.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. And it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.